welcome to the Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Debbie Hitchin, and my colleague Claudia Amos, Technical Director of Circular Economy, Resource Efficiency and Waste here at Anthesis. If you've joined us for previous episodes, you'll know that we're co-hosting a short series of podcasts which uses informal conversation to explore trends and opportunities in our sector through the lenses of women like us. We're inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work that we do and provide some interesting industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we're excited to be joined by our colleague, Lisa Grice, who's an executive director in the Anthesis US business covering North America. Welcome, Lisa. It's great to have you with us as our guest today. I was going to do a little biog for you, but actually, I always think it's better if people introduce themselves because I know for a fact that you have some super experience and I'm not going to do it justice. So perhaps you could start by introducing yourself to us, Lisa, and telling us a little bit about your experiences and how you got to the role that you're in today. Sure, absolutely. So I lead circularity for our North American business and have been working on uh, energy efficiency and resource efficiency for my entire surprisingly long career. Uh, I'll tell you what really got me going was when I started college at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island in uh, 1979, don't gasp. The, the, the oil embargoes had just hit in the late 70s and everyone was talking about energy efficiency and fossil fuel dependency and the book Energy Future came out. And it really moved me and it really struck me how much dependency there was between our use of energy and our everyday lives and resource efficiency. And I was absolutely blessed that Brown started an engineering program that was interdisciplinary called uh, energy engineering that had on the one hand energy classes like thermodynamics and energy conversion systems and fluid dynamics. But at the same time, we did environmental studies. We took solar architecture at the Rhode Island School of Design. We looked at urban planning because at the end of the day, our energy future is so multidisciplinary and depends so much on, on how we live and the diversity of resources available to us. And from that point forward, I was really focused on the intersection between energy and the environment. That is such an interesting start to your career, Lisa, and it it sort of resonates actually with my own degree. I did something called resources in the environment and at the time it felt a little bit like we were piggybacking on a number of other people's courses. So I did a combination of nuclear physics and geopolitics and geology, for example, in, in one of my years. And it was only really with hindsight that I realized how valuable sticking those different modules from different masters and undergraduate courses together was to actually sort of set the pathway for sustainability. So it sounds like you and I were on a sort of early career path that was that was kind of quite similar. When we talked before, though, you were talking to us also about some of the people who inspired you in that start of your career. There were a few people, I think, that you mentioned that really stood out as pointing you in the right direction for the subsequent career journey that you took? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. All right, I have to touch on three people and I'll be brief. So the first, absolutely my dad. My dad was a salesman who loved his job because he loved talking to customers and he really treated customers like they were friends. I mean, for my dad, they were friends. Every new customer was an opportunity for a new friend. And that was really influential to me. And then secondly, I was Again, absolutely so lucky that in the early 80s, when I graduated, when there were hardly any women in management, much less senior management roles, 
I had a woman manager, Faye Buby, to this day, remarkable woman. And not only did I have the benefit of a highly accomplished female role model, she had really great work-life balance. She was highly analytical with a degree in mathematics. She was really great at her job. She had a lot of fun in her life. She did not wear the 1980s women in business suit with a little teeny bow tie, string tie thing. She just dressed joyfully and really set an example for me of what it meant to be your own person and be good at your job. And then I have to mention one more person, which was Paul Miskimmon. And it's a good example. You don't have to be a woman to mentor women. And he really helped me transition from being a doer to being a seller doer. And what I really, where I benefited most, I'm a very technical person. And he showed me how to use my technical expertise to help craft scopes of work for clients to solve their problems. Because sales isn't just selling, sales is about solving problems. And when you're technical, the best way to do business development is to just apply your expertise to help the client figure out solutions to their problems. When I look at all three of those together, I'd say that the story I really learned is you're in partnership with your clients and you're working jointly to solve problems. And with that attitude, you have a lot of fun and you get a lot done. I really love that. And I think that explains so much because I really like your style in terms of client and, and business development. So I think that makes complete sense to me. And I love this combination of technical competency but at the same time of being being commercial and being able to sell to a client sell the services sell the solutions to a certain degree and I think for me maybe there's another part as well there's the diagnostics bit because often you know we get confronted with symptoms so people tell us what's wrong and what's not working then it's really for us to to figure out how we can help and how we can best help. And I think if we then present a solution that is relevant to the client, that's when we get awarded the project. I think that solutioneering is something that is actually really exciting about our roles. And solutioneering is a new word to me, but solutioneering has been used in a project that I'm working on right now, actually, so many times that I've come to accept that it must be in the dictionary. But for me, I think that's the exciting part of what we get to do every day. And, you know, we work with so many different clients in different sectors, diverse client or customer and consumer issues that are sort of driving their agendas, different investors and shareholder issues. And for me, it's that opportunity to kind of really get under the skin of another business and help them understand what their problem is. And, and Claudia, to your point, not just the symptoms, but actually right to the root cause of what that problem is. Lisa, that's something that you've been doing all the way through your career, isn't it? But the thing I particularly find exciting about what you do is that you go right for the sort of systems and design and sort of systemic change at the, right at the beginning of new product development, don't you? And you're looking at how you can kind of create circularity and new business solutions right from the outset. I don't know if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the examples of, of project work that you have and how you go about doing that design for sustainability. Oh, absolutely. There's so many different ways that we attach this. Sometimes I have a client that is interested in focusing on a certain aspect of sustainability. Like I have a, a medical device client really interested in making products that are more repairable and can more easily be recycled at their end of life. And so we've embedded in the R&D process, design for repairability 
reprocessing and recycling, which has a number of elements to it, of course, upgradability, design for disassembly, ensuring that individual component parts are homogenous to make recycling easier, there's sort of a long list of how you design for repairability and recyclability. To the other end of the spectrum, I have a client that's interested in embedding design for sustainability entirely into the R&D process, looking at what may be as many as 47 different criteria. Everything from, of course, designing to lower the carbon footprint through the selection of materials, manufacturing, end of life, but also looking at the use of animal-derived substances, ensuring the product is repairable, looking at water use in manufacturing, looking at substances of concern. I mean, when you really design for sustainability, there are a lot of different opportunities that we like to focus on. I will say this one thing, the key thing in design for sustainability, when you look to embed this into the R&D process, the R&D team has a lot of competing priorities. They're trying to balance functionality, regulatory requirements, economic realities, commercial benefit, and so you want sustainability to be as much as possible a natural part of the R&D process as currently designed. So making things as simple as possible, giving really good direction to the R&D team, not trying to turn them into LCA experts. And the more you can really embed into the way R&D already works well, the more successful you'll be at getting more sustainable products. And what do you think about design to recycle in terms of your hierarchy? You said repair, remanufacture and recycle. How much is that more on the material level when you start thinking about recycling or is that still at the product level where recycling comes in? Because if you think about repair, we're talking about the whole product and maybe remanufactures is different parts. And then if I look at recycling, I'm probably looking at the individual materials because in a circular material flow, only the, or most of the time, only the individual materials can be recycled. Yeah. So there's so many, there's so many pieces to the answer to that question. So when you talk about design for recycling specifically, you've got a framework or building blocks. First, the product needs to be made from materials that can be recycled. Then the materials need to be accessed. So that might mean starting at the smallest pieces that components have to either be homogenous so the materials can be recycled or easy to disassemble. Of course, you're looking for things that don't have inks or labels or other contaminants that will impair recyclability. Then you need to move to the next step of the building block. Those recyclable components have to be accessible within the product. If they're glued in place, they may be too difficult to access or the owner of the product just may not bother because it's too difficult. Ideally, before you just design for recycling those components, you'd like to design for parts harvesting. If possible, design the product so it could be disassembled and then those components, the ones that are still in good shape, can be used in another product and then what's left can be recycled. So there's a lot of steps to making sure you've designed for recycling. Oh, and I forgot one often overlooks labeling. You need to know how any of these individual materials, components, or products can be recycled, that they are recyclable. 
and of course, I think we have to remember that the waste hierarchy actually puts recycling below repair and reuse. And, you know, there is a growing recognition, although actually I think consumers would still say they think most products are designed for obsolescence. But I think there is a growing recognition, actually, policy frameworks and best practice examples should be leading us much more towards the repairability and maintenance of products and materials to keep them at their highest possible value. In fact, if you look at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation definitions of circularity, recycling is what they consider sort of the inner loop. It's the last loop that you want to go to after you've looked at all of those other opportunities for repair, reuse, remanufacture. We were talking before we came on this recording about various websites where consumers can access information that helps them to get the sort of longevity out of certain products. Yes, yes. Let me talk about those just one second, but I want to make sure we touch on one quick point, which is this conversation focuses on the product, the product view. But we have to keep in mind a better business model is to move away from the product as a purchase and single user owned product, but to move towards business models where the product gets more use, perhaps by more people, a subscription model, or a resale model, or a sharing model, which we're seeing coming up more and more. You know, we've got Patagonia and Eileen Fisher that will take products back, repair them and send them back out into the marketplace with new life. We've got subscription models. I think even uh, Ralph Lauren is looking at moving towards a subscription model for some of their products and brands. So this is an exciting opportunity to really reduce waste and really optimize our use of resources. Absolutely. And I think just really expanding it to different products, isn't it? For example, a car share is a really established concept, which makes really economic sense and not just environmental sense, uh, and also in terms of space and convenience for, for many people. But then, as you said, closing other items, we're just not as used to it and it hasn't really been as established as a really good way of utilizing the things you need, but not necessarily owning them, especially when you don't need them. Yeah, yeah. And now to Debbie's point, there's a lot of information out there now for repairing your own products, in fact. And if you, dear listener, have not been to the iFixit website, you owe yourself I-F-I-X-I-T. It's absolutely fascinating. Crowdsourced repair manuals and information on how to repair a huge array of different types of products. Absolutely a fantastic resource and growing all the time. And then on YouTube, you'll find some of the big manufacturers like Dell. Dell has a whole YouTube channel of repair videos for different products. So they're really trying to make repair accessible, not just designing for repairability, but enabling the education that's required for repairability. I think we're seeing a really big trend in that direction now. That's really interesting comment, Lisa. So how do you design for repair, reprocessing and recycling? Are there certain principles or can you give us some examples to explain a bit more how you best approach it and what you have to be aware of? Oh, I love that question. And there is a lot of detail, but I'll try and go over some of the common elements. First is to minimize the number of joining technologies and make them simple. So I'm talking about hinges, joints, and connectors. 
you want to use connectors that are easy to separate and easy to recover without destroying them. So, for example, you want to avoid irreversible snap fit designs. Instead, try and use screws or removable fasteners. When you use screws, use one type of screw head per product. That makes it much simpler. And ensure that recyclable materials can be easily separated from the rest of the product and appropriate for individual work streams or recycling streams. There's a big focus on minimizing contamination so that it's easy to clean things and reuse them, either reusing the product or reusing the parts. So to the extent that you can reduce corners, sharp edges, pockets, elevator channels, blind holes, these are all things that are very difficult to clean or sterilize and make it more difficult to reuse the products. You want to look for ways to standardize parts and components between older models and newer models and between different models, making it easier to have an inventory for repair. Of course, you're looking to make products more durable, and that's simple to say, but it's interesting how many different things can affect durability. You can have materials that through use or through sterilization processes, they can impact the usability of the product by adhesive failure or reducing tensile strength or crazing or chemical reaction or leaching. So you want to look for materials and assemblies that can avoid those kinds of problems. Of course, I think we talked on the importance of having software that can be upgradable without having to buy a new product or a new component. And then having, and this is surprisingly often overlooked, some form of identity control like individualized serial numbers or device IDs or barcodes or some sort of marks that allow you to track the different components as well as the product. If you can design products to have complementary diagnostic tools so you know when a part is likely to fail so that it can be repaired before it breaks is a tremendous advantage. And um, then I guess just the usual cast of characters around recyclability, making materials recyclable themselves, creating products that can be disassembled so the recyclable components can go into the right recycling stream, avoiding chemicals, additives, and agents that affect recycling, avoiding colors and finishes that affect recycling, and making sure that recyclable components are labeled so that they will find the right recycling stream. I think that gives us a good sense of some of what's possible to make sure that a product's end of life is not really the end. What I'm interested in is the consumer behavior aspect of this, because we fix solutions from the sort of technical or systems perspective. When we work with our business clients, we can put in place these solutions. What I suppose I'm challenged by is whether we have the right consumer behavior now or in future generations to actually maximize that opportunity. You know, how many people, I wonder, are willing to have a go at fixing their white goods or repairing their ICT equipment and so on? And how many would just say, well, in this sort of consumer society, it's cheaper for me to just go and buy a replacement and it's quicker and more efficient if I do so? 
I think one of the issues is also getting people to repair it. But uh, I think during COVID, there was nobody out there to be able to come out to your home and repair things. So I think people went more and more onto YouTube and others. And what I think interests me, those YouTube repair channels have been out for a very long time and have been used by loads of different people. But they always felt slightly subversive, as if we were doing something wrong and something behind the manufacturer's back. So I really like it now that actually the manufacturers are providing, if you want, official version of how to do it properly and also really engage with their consumers how they can repair different things. Sometimes it might be a really easy fix, and sometimes it might be a bit more difficult. Or at least maybe you could take it to the repair cafes, Claudia. When we spoke with Donna Stimson, who was one of our previous um, guests, she was telling us about the sort of economic benefit that uh, repair cafes and other small businesses that are kind of popping up in light of this ability to drive your repairs, that they're actually having really positive impacts on society. And she was talking specifically about examples in the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead. But Lisa, I'm interested in your view on this, because the US has some regulations and, and it recently was brought into regulation in the UK as well, around the right to repair. And that sort of policy framework is is moving the dial again further towards providing a sort of framework for these operations and businesses to to thrive. Right. And I hope everyone's been seeking out their own repair cafes. I think there's something like 1500 repair cafes worldwide. I know we've got them all over the US. COVID was a bit of an interference, but they're popping back up again. You mentioned regulation. It makes me so happy because uh, there's a lot of instances where on sustainability elements, perhaps the U.S. follows the EU. But in this case, the U.S. was the leader. Seriously, Massachusetts Automotive Right to Repair Bill passed in 2012 with something like 86% of the vote. So we led on right to repair. And as you think about it, it's really part of U.S. culture. We want to be able to take care of our own stuff. The tendency trended towards making equipment that was harder to repair for various reasons, like light weighting product or protecting intellectual property, became harder to repair and more frustrating for owners. That 2012 state level bill turned into a national level policy that went into force as of, I think, 2018. And even now there's nearly 20 US states that have right to repair legislation that's being considered as we speak. And quick shorthand, when we talk about right to repair, especially when we're talking about digital equipment, because that's where things get really challenging, the goal is to provide parts, access to embedded software, tools, documentation as required so you can have diagnostic, maintenance, uh, repair manuals, diagrams, whatever is required for independent repair. And even if that means providing it to an independent repair provider who then perhaps has to be certified to ensure that they can repair the product adequately. But the goal is to make sure that parts are not so specialized that you can't access them tools are not so specialized that you can't access them, and that uh, diagnostics are available to anybody who needs to be able to repair a product. And how does that deal with kind of like warranty or product safety? Are there different safeguards in there? 
because my guess is from a manufacturer's point of view, that is one of their main concerns, isn't it? Right. I think that's where the aspect of providing education instead of resisting repair is probably the most holistic solution. The wave has been moving for decades now towards being able to repair. People will continue to try and repair or have their independent shops repair. So let's provide more information and ensure that security and safety are are protected. Lisa, is there much publicity or publicly available information about um, this opportunity within North America? It's an interesting question. These days, you know, how do people get their information anywhere in the world, right? It used to be just a single newspaper, but now it's if you seek it out, you will find it. So if you go to the ifixit.org website, you will find information. If you go to Microsoft's website, you will find information on the eco-design of their products with very lengthy documentation on anything from carbon footprint to recyclability. So the information is out there, but it's more for consumers to seek it than perhaps having it uh, directly in their face. There are progressively retailers that have signage and outreach information about how they are willing to take used products back and refurbish them and resell them. And slowly we're starting to see these subscription models, which will absolutely be supported by the same sort of retail level marketing that we see with new products. It's very interesting changing landscape, this. And I think we could probably talk about the right to repair and these sharing economy solutions probably for quite some time yet. But unfortunately, I think we're probably at time. So that leads us, Lisa, to say thank you very much for joining us today and for sharing your insights and your thoughts. We really appreciate what you've brought to the podcast. And we would encourage any listeners who want to know anything more about your thoughts or provide any feedback, please do get in touch. Let us know if there are areas of expertise that you would like to know more about. But for now, we'll just say thank you for listening and goodbye. Mm -hmm.